0: While they're getting the handouts out to you, I want to mention that my website, Dennispreebe.com, is available, and it's spelled right here for you so you can spell it right. Uh, if you want to dig deeper into these subjects, a lot of material on these subjects is available on my website, including a Bible study course that you can take online or download on these very subjects. So you can do it on your own. And that is something new this year. So if you haven't visited my website in a year, that's the new thing. All right, dennispreby.com is the website. All right, let us quietly begin by asking God to be with us one more time. Father in heaven, as we discuss one of the most sacred topics we can possibly touch, our Lord and Savior and his coming down to this earth, may we be humble May we be reverent, and most of all, may we want to know everything that will help us to be like Christ. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Friends, the only reason I tackle this subject, you know that this is a bombshell subject. You know that it causes all kinds of controversy and everybody argues about it. The only reason I deal with this subject in my seminars is because I don't know how to talk about righteousness by faith without talking about the one who was righteous by faith. I just don't know how to do it. And uh, remember uh, in uh, Peter Gregory's message this morning, he read the text in Revelation chapter three that we overcome as Jesus overcame. See, that's the point, isn't it? There is never any way that we will know how to overcome unless we understand how Jesus overcame. And that's the point of this study this afternoon. So try to divest yourself of all of the uh, controversial arguments that you've heard here and there. And let's just find out what this can tell us about how to be saved. All right, go directly with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. Make sure, those of you who are coming in, you get a copy of the outline as you come in. Philippians 2, verse 5. If there were one verse I would choose for everything I want to say today and tomorrow, it is Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. If we could experience that verse, my friends, we would have smooth sailing. I don't mean we wouldn't be free from trouble, but we would know how to make good decisions. We would always have the right attitudes. We would always be making Christ's decisions after him. Boy, we need the mind of Christ. Pray for that who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things on earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. There it is, my friends, all in, one, all in one paragraph. The whole great controversy story. And you know when that day will happen? When every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? It's over a thousand years in our future, my friends. It's a long ways off. This plan of God in salvation is a complicated plan. God is taking care of every possible objection and, and, and problem so that sin will never arise again. Because you and I will have just as much free choice a 1,000 years from now as you do today. And you can do anything you want to a 1,000 years from now. There are no buttons pushed in your brain to stop you from sinning. And the only way that will be prevented is if, God, is if God answers every issue in this world before he finishes it up. And you know what the last issue is? Every being that God has ever created will have to see that God is just, including those who have turned against Him, including those who went to their graves thinking they were saved because they believed in a false gospel, because they believed in this or that or the other. And they need to know why they would not be happy in heaven because they think they will be. They think they'll be able to get along in heaven just okay. And they will have to know why if God let them in heaven, it would be a miserable hell for them for all eternity. They have to know that. That's why he brings them up. Have you wondered why he brings them up again to put them under the gray, under the, you know, to death again? Because they have to know that they are getting the most merciful sentence that God could give them. An end to their existence because they, are miser- they would be miserable in the presence of God. And you know, I'm waiting for that day. When Satan himself comes walking up before the throne of God, lifted up before that city, gets on his knees voluntarily and says in the presence of every being that has ever been created, I am wrong and you are right. The most merciful thing you can do for me is to end my existence. When that sentence comes out of Satan's lips, this universe will be safe to live in again. That's what this is talking about right here. Now let's go back to verse 7. Jesus Christ, he is in the form of God, but he made himself of no reputation. That's what the King James language says. It actually is simpler in the original language. It says he emptied himself. And that's my question here. What did Christ, of what did Christ empty himself? And we're going to take a very quick trip through the things that he emptied. First is omnipotence. Would you turn to John chapter 5, verse 30? These are some strange statements that Jesus makes. You would not expect him to make them. John 5, verse 30. I, Jesus says, can of mine own self do nothing? What is that? Who is this Jesus that is speaking? What was his name in Old Testament times? You heard a little about it last night. That was only one name. What's his chosen name? What is his preferred name in the Old Testament? Yahweh. Yahweh. The Jews didn't know about Jehovah. That is an English mistranslation of the Jewish name, and we're not sure how it's even pronounced. Y-H-W-H. That is the chosen name of God. I, Yahweh, can, do of my, can of mine own self do nothing. That sounds very strange, doesn't it? Do you ever read in the Old Testament, I, Yahweh, can of mine own self do nothing? You find that text for me, it's rarer than the Sunday text. <laughs> but Jesus, the same being, when he's a human being, the Son of Man says, I, as a man can of mine own self do nothing. Isn't that amazing? And then he even says, I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. I would have expected Jesus to say, I seek my will and the will of my Father because they're both the same. He didn't say that. We'll see what that means in a little bit. But right now, and again, we're going to go back and forth quite a bit between the Ellen White statements now and this first page. So if you'll go directly to the Ellen White statements, it's on the back side of the first page. Jesus is in the little boat on the Sea of Galilee. The disciples are afraid it's all over for them. He, Christ, rested not in the possession of almighty power. It was not as the master of earth and sea and sky that he reposed in quiet. That power he had laid down, and he says, I can of mine own self do nothing. He trusted in the Father's might. It was in faith, faith in God's love and care, that Jesus rested. And the power of that word, which stilled the storm, and I would say raised the dead and healed the lepers, was the power of God. How did Jesus do his mighty miracles? Not by his own power as Yahweh. He had laid that aside. Why did he do that? Because you and I have no power in and of ourselves to do anything that is relevant to life itself. When you can keep your heart beating, then you have some control over life. But until that day, you are subject to poor forces outside yourself, and so was Jesus. All right, so that's the first point that he leaves aside. The second point in your outline is memory. You don't even have to look up this text because you know it. Luke 2:52. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. It's easy to see Jesus growing up as a little boy, but how does he increase in wisdom? Well, how do you increase in wisdom? Let's look again at Ellen White. Remembering the outline numbers here and letters are for your study. We're now on 1B, 1B on the first page, 1B in the Ellen White Statement, so you know where to study in your own 1B. The very words which he himself had spoken to Moses for Israel, he was now taught at his mother's knee. He gained knowledge as we may do. Isn't, wouldn't you just be like to be there that day when that little boy Jesus, I don't know how old, maybe four or five years old, comes marching into his mother and says, why do we keep Sabbath from when the sun sets on Friday to when the sun sets on Sabbath? And his mother would tell him, because Yahweh told us to. And there is Yahweh sitting before her. Isn't that incredible? Wow. He who had made all things studied the lessons which his own hand had written in earth and sea and sky. You know what? I'm going to share something with you that I can't prove, but I think I'm right. (laughs) You know more about the laws of the universe, the lessons which His own hand had written in earth and sea and sky than Jesus did when He was on earth. How many people knew about germs and viruses in the time of Jesus? How many people knew about cell construction, mitosis, and all of the other things that happen in cell reproduction? How many people knew about that in the time of Christ? All right. And if Jesus Christ comes to his people at the level of knowledge at which they knew his mother couldn't teach him that the rabbis couldn't teach him that. And if he gained knowledge as we may do, then he wouldn't know what you know about the way the the earth and the universe is constructed. He wouldn't even know that the earth goes around the sun. Mm -hmm. I doubt it because that didn't happen until very recent in our history. I say I can't prove any of those things, but I think. I think that Jesus' knowledge was limited to the knowledge of his day. What a tremendous condescension of Jesus to come down to that level of ignorance to save mankind. When he was 12 years of age, his, deci- his parents took him to the temple for the very first time, and for the first time he saw a lamb being sacrificed. And at that moment, it says the mis- mystery of his mission was opening to the Savior. Watch that carefully at age 10 Jesus did not know his mission because the rabbis didn't tell him and his mother didn't tell him that he was going to die on a cross hated by his own people only when he was 12 two things came together he saw the sacrifice which was God's object lesson and you know what the Holy Spirit does with object lessons he impresses upon our minds what the met lesson means and on that 12 year old mind the Holy Spirit said that's your mission that's what you were sent here to do And from that moment on, Jesus said, Don't you know I have to be about my Father's business? Everything changed for Jesus from that moment on. So the point? Jesus does not know His mission by training, by knowledge, by inheritance. He knows His mission by faith in the Holy Spirit speaking to His heart. How do you know your mission? By faith as the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart. Not even by me telling you what I think your mission is. Only by you Listening to the Holy Spirit. That's how we tell what God wants us to do. By faith, Jesus lived his entire life. By faith. All right, outline page. For knowledge. For knowledge. Look up with me. Mark 13, 32. Mark 13, 32. He has spent an entire chapter explaining what will happen between his first and second comings. He has now come to the end of the story, and look at what he says. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man. What day and hour? His second coming. No, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. What has Jesus just said? I don't know when I'm coming back. Only the Father knows. Isn't that a strange statement of Jesus? You know what, friends? Jesus is willing to be ignorant when God chooses for him to be ignorant. Are you willing? You know where we get into most of our trouble? We want to know one thing more than what God told us. We want to speculate a little more than God said. We want to say, I think this, and I think that, and this could be, and that could be, and it seems to me... Let's be done with that let's just say whatever God chooses to reveal to us we will understand he hasn't chosen to reveal much about the New Earth life have you noticed that Mm -hmm. I have a lot of questions about what New Earth life will be like I could give you about an hour's worth of questions but I'm content to say it's time when the Lord knows that it's time he'll tell me and I'll leave it at that there are questions that we don't need to probe into Jesus was content to not know if his father chose not to reveal it to him okay Let's see what Ellen White says, section 1C. Before he came to earth, the plan lay out before him perfect in all its detail. As Yahweh, he saw every detail. But as he walked among men, that's Jesus now, he was guided step by step by the Father's will. All right? Christ in his life on earth made no plans for himself. He accepted God's plans for him, and day by day the Father unfolded his plans. That's a good lesson for us to learn, isn't it? We do not need to know next year. We need to know maybe an hour from now or maybe tomorrow. Now, the next one. The next one is so important. The Savior could not see. This is when he's dying on the cross. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror, or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. Put this in perspective now. Jesus said on one occasion, "Destroy this temple, his, this body, and in three days I will raise it up." He believed that, without question. But my friends, understand that when Jesus is going into the Gethsemane cross experience, something is happening to him that has never been he has never experienced before. What is happening to him that changes everything from the point of Jesus' perspective? What does he no longer experience? The presence of his father. Because his father has pulling himself away from his son, not in anger, not even in what we would call wrath, but in mercy because God destroyed the glory of God, destroys sin, and Jesus is becoming a sin bearer. And in mercy, God pulls himself back into the darkness. He's still there, but he's covered in darkness now. And Jesus can't sense his presence. Everything changes when you can't sense the Father's presence. Everything changes when Jesus isn't there. What was true and clear in your minds is now all uncertain and muddy. And now Jesus is going to the cross with only his memories of the past 33 years, because now it's different. Now he has to rely totally on the past, not on the present. And that was hard for Jesus, just as it is for us today. Now, I don't know, obviously, everything that Jesus went through on the cross, but I think something like this had to be going through Jesus' mind. Father, I am here because you sent me, but right now I can't see your face. My disciples have all abandoned me. The people that I came to save are putting me on the cross. And I don't know. I can't feel. I'm not certain if I'm ever coming out of this experience alive. You aren't here anymore. You aren't encouraging me. The angels don't encourage me anymore. They, I'm all alone. Will I? I'm a sinner. And remember, Satan is whispering in his ear, just like he does in us. You're too great a sinner. You are so lost. You can't come out of this experience. Jesus is dying the second death quality experience. There is no coming back from that, Satan says. You're a goner. And Jesus is fighting between two things on the cross just like you must faith and feeling that's the battle of a lifetime faith and feeling because your feelings will always tell you something different than faith in God's Word I guarantee it part of a fallen nature it'll be a miracle of God when feelings correspond with faith and I believe it will happen but it's not happening very often these days there's always the conflict between faith and And feelings and Jesus is going to have to go by faith and I'm so glad for the last words of Jesus Christ father into thy hands I commit my spirit you decide Lord you decide father whatever you decide I'm happy with which means if you decide that I stay dead for all eternity I accept that I accept that Remember, the death that Jesus died in his own mind didn't feel like a three-day death. It felt like eternal separation. And Jesus was willing to pay that price. Someone else was willing to pay that price for his people in Old Testament times. Do you know his name? Moses. Moses. If his people would be cut off because of their rebellion, Moses asked God to blot his name out of the book of life. That isn't a three-day death. That's right. Here are examples of people who put the name and the honor of God above their own salvation. Now, that is huge for us today, my friends, because I believe we got things turned around in our, well, what do I call it? Our gospel, our light gospel, uh, grace friendly. uh, Don't talk about obedience, the society that we're living in today. We are being told that the most important question to ask today is, do I personally have the assurance of salvation? Bottom line, do I know that I am saved? We're being told that's the most important question. And I agree it is an important question. But I don't think it's the most important one. Was it the most important one for Jesus? Was it the most important one for Moses? And what is the song that people will sing at the end of time?
1: Song of
0: Moses And the Lamb. Amen. The song of Moses and the Lamb. You know what we're going to be concerned about, and I say we being the final generation which we're supposed to be, and it better be us. Amen. What we're going to be concerned about as the crunch comes down is not whether I'm going to squeak into heaven by my fingernails. That's right. But we're going to be concerned about whether my thoughts, my actions, and my words are vindicating God or Satan. Amen. That's all we're going to be concerned about. When we're, when we're in, in dire persecution, when things are happening to us that are beyond our ability to withstand, we are not going to say, well, I'm, I'm going to be lost because of this. No, that won't even enter our minds. But the only question will be, am I going to mess up God's plan of salvation? Am I going to help Satan win the great controversy? We'll spend more on that to- time on that tomorrow. I am, I am going to be part of the vindicating or defeating issues in the great controversy between Christ and Satan. And I believe that our basic question and motivation should be for being a Seventh-day Adventist today, am I participating in the final vindication of God and God's winning the great controversy? I believe that's why we should live Christian lives. Being saved? Wow, that's a nice benefit. Um, frosting on the cake maybe added benefit special extra special gift but the real issue is am i telling the truth about the character of God today by my words by my acts by my thoughts am i vindicating God's name I believe that's what we are called to be and to do all right let's see what else we can find out on the outline Section D, omnipresence. Section E, glory. I'm going to let you study those for yourselves. They're pretty obvious. Jesus didn't bring those. Five things, omnipotence, memory, foreknowledge, omnipresence, and glory that Christ emptied himself of. Why did Christ empty himself of these things? I sometimes say, as I go to churches around the country, that most Christians worship a Christ who never existed. Most Christians worship a paper Christ. What do I mean? A Christ that was written up by theologians down through the centuries to protect certain pet doctrines, such as original sin. And I believe that most Christians have never met or understood or heard the real Jesus Christ, the flesh and blood Jesus, the real Christ of Nazareth. Most Christians believe that I've been giving you a lot of lies over the past 20 minutes. Ask a Christian on the street, how did Christ do his mighty miracles? How did he raise Lazarus from the dead? And what will be the instant answer you get? Because he is God, of course. God does mighty miracles all the time. Christ was God, and he raised people from the dead. Ask the same Christian, how did Jesus overcome sin? So for 33 years, he didn't even sin once, an impossible feat. How did he do that? Because he's God. That's right. Because he is God. And you know there's a text in the Bible that says God cannot be tempted with evil. That's right. right, It's there. So if Jesus is operating as God, which most Christians think he is, then he can't be, he can't sin. He can't sin. Because God can't sin. How can God be deceived? Well, try this. Satan says this will work better for you. Will that work very well for God? Ah, my friends. If Jesus is operating as God, if this all I've shared with you is wrong, as most Christians believe, most Christians do not believe anything of what I've told you in the last 20 minutes. Understand that. If that is true, that Christians are right and I am wrong, then Jesus Christ could not sin. Now, you believe he did not sin. Is there a difference? Yes. Wow, what a difference there is. Could not and did not. If he could not sin, then there was no test. If he could not sin, then it was a choreographed play. It was pre-written out in heaven. And Jesus, with his omniscient mind, learned every line, took that omniscient mind down to this earth, repeated the lines faithfully, finished it out just as the, as the play dictated, went back to heaven, and the audience <laughs> applauded. Wonderful play. That's all it was. There was no risk. There was no test. There was no possibility of failure. Many, many Christians believe that. This is a dominant view in Christianity. They call it the impeccability of Christ. There's a word for you. Impossible for him to sin. And so Jesus Christ is not the Christ that you know and understand in that version, is he? And then there's something else. Do you feel very comfortable... When you know you are talking to a very saintly person who, as far as you can tell, hasn't sinned in the last three years, (laughs) do you feel very comfortable saying, well, this is how I'm feeling today, and this is what's going on in my life? Probably not. (laughs) Now, here is Jesus. He is holy. He hasn't sinned in 33 years. Not his entire life. He's on this high and holy pedestal. And where are you? Down here in the mud with sin, wallowing around in your little problems of everyday life. So how do you talk to this holy person in a way that you're comfortable with and that he would understand? And so Christians solved this problem. They came up with someone between, someone in the middle, someone who could understand both sides. What was her name? Mary, of course. And Mary would be the way we could communicate with the impeccable Son of God. That worked for a while. But all of a sudden, that pillar of Mary began to arise. Did you notice in history? All of a sudden, she didn't have a normal birth. She had an immaculate conception, meaning she skipped 4,000 years of human heredity. And she was born with a sinless nature. And then when she died, she didn't go in spirit form to heaven like all the other saints, but she went in bodily form to heaven, where she sits today at the right hand of Jesus Christ, helping him to dispense the benefits of salvation to the human family. Has that pedestal risen a bit? I'm still wallowing down here in the mud of my sins and daily problems. Who do I talk to now? And Christians came up with answers. Whenever there's a problem, Christians come up with answers. Why, it would be St. Peter and St. Thomas and, Saint, and then it came to other saints like St. Saint Christopher and St. John Paul II and all the rest. Why? Because those were ordinary people like us. They started out in the same mud of this old earth, the same natures that we have. They came to live holy lives coming out of this sinful nature and world. They understand what I'm going through. Do you get the point? They have been in my shoes. I can tell them where I'm having my problems. They will understand what my problems are. Then they will reinterpret my language, and they will communicate in better language to Mary, who will then reinterpret my language and communicate in better language to Jesus, who then will reinterpret her language and communicate in a better way to the Father. And if I'm very, very lucky, I'll get an answer back here. Is that what the Bible teaches? How many mediators? One mediator, the man, notice? Christ Jesus. Why is only one mediator needed? Because he started in the same mud that I start in the same ugly world, the same equipment, the same temptations, the same pulls and tugs. And out of that ugliness, he developed a character that was pure and spotless. And so if I'm now stuck in this thing, I can say, Jesus, how did you deal with that? Help me now. That's all we need. That's all we need. You do not have to be afraid of talking to an impeccable Jesus because he was never that. He was a victorious Jesus. There's a huge difference. And now you can ask him, how can I have the experience that you had? So those are a couple of reasons that I believe it's essential to understand what I've been sharing with you in this first part of the outline. Now let's go to the dangerous part of the outline. What nature did Christ take? You heard me say this morning, I believe it is fallen human nature, and we're going to look up Romans chapter 8, verse 3 right now. There are more texts that I haven't listed here, such as Hebrews 2. You can find them for yourself. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. Stop right there. The word flesh is the most misunderstood King James translation in our Bible, I think. Maybe there are others. What do you think of when you hear the word flesh? Meat, right? Yeah, flesh, meat, the flesh in our bodies, flesh. That isn't what the word means at all. It doesn't even come close to that and yet that's the word that the King James translators used for that Greek word sarx, S-A-R-X. Let's turn to a text that will tell you exactly what flesh means. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Verse 17. Galatians hold your... Uh, that's okay, you can come back to it. Galatians 5, 17. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other. Are we getting a little better picture of what flesh means now? The word flesh, consistently, not just once or twice, consistently throughout the New Testament, the Greek word for flesh means fallen humanity, mind, and body. Everything that is fallen about us. You could translate it with the words fallen nature and be just fine. Some of the modern translations do use fallen nature to translate flesh. And that means my mind and my body working together because they are fallen. The fallen nature lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the fallen nature. And these are contrary the one to the other. The word flesh means fallenness, including our mind including our emotions, including our impulses, including our tendencies, including all of the drives that make us human beings. And there are good drives that God has created in us that Satan twists around. Those drives as well. And so it says here, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the fallen nature, the fallenness of our mind and body, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful what? Fallenness. Mind and body. Condemned sin in the what? In the flesh. In the fallenness of mind and body. Jesus condemned sin in that fallenness. That's the miracle of the incarnation. As someone said, um, if... um, uh, Willie Mays or uh, some you know, great uh, home run hitting hero of baseball were to come up to the plate and hit three home runs in a game, uh, nobody, people say, oh, well, that's just Willie Mays or whoever it is. But if Dennis Preebe would step up to the same plate and hit three home runs in one game, it would be front page news throughout the United States. See the difference? With someone who has all kinds of abilities, okay, he did it. With someone who has all the odds stacked against him because there is no natural ability, it is miracle of miracles Amen. that there was victory. And here, the flesh means everything stacked against Jesus Christ. And yet, he overcame. Amen. Now, the word likeness troubles some people. The likeness of sinful humanity. What in the world does likeness mean? Turn to Philippians 2.7, where we were a few minutes ago. It uses the same Greek word, and it's the same in English. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. And we're going to do a little word study right here. In Philippians 2, 7. Where it says, He took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Likeness. All right, simple question. We could spend a lot of time on this, but just a simple question. Was Jesus an actual real human being or did he, was he just like a human being? Now, if I were to take you back to the first century, there would be a lot of argument on that, because there were a group of Christians called Docetists who said, no, he was pure spirit, he never took a flesh body at all. But today, I don't think that's true. I think every one of us is 100% agreed that Jesus was an actual, real, live human being with all of the, ten- all of the, the, uh, the necessities of eating and sleeping and all the rest that human beings have, right? All right, so that's clear. It says he was made in the likeness of men. So does likeness mean similar to, somewhat like, or does it mean actual or real? It does mean actual here, doesn't it? So the word likeness does not mean necessarily somewhat like. But now let's do just a little word study here. Verse 6, who being in the form of God. Well, what is the form of God? Was Jesus like God or a picture of God, or a representation of God, or was he God? Okay, so being in the form of God means actually God, doesn't it? Really, God, fully God. All right, so the form of God means fully God. Now he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took it, made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. So what does form mean there? Did he really become a servant? Yeah. So the form again means actually a servant, but it gets deeper than that. The Greek word here for servant, does anybody know what it really means? Slave. 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 It's a dressed up word in the English language in the King James translation. The word doulos in Greek means slave with no rights and no, um, no, no, no ability to be a citizen even and Jesus it said took upon him the form of a slave. A simple question. When God created Adam in the garden of Eden as in the image of God, was that a slave? There was no slave form there, was there? It was perfect. It was as close to God's you know, being in God. Ellen White even says in physical form, as well as in mental and spiritual, um, Adam was like, the fo- was like God. I don't know fully what that means, but she says that. That is not a slave form. When did Adam and Eve and the human race turn into slaves? When they sinned, right? Right what happened to that beautiful physical form didn't happen at once but what happened to it it came out to look like you and me and I wouldn't be too proud of that what happened to that beautiful mind that brain that was probably three times the size of ours how much of our brain do we use today I'm hearing reports that it's very small percentages of our brain we actually can use compared to what they used. Slave form happened rather quickly for Adam and Eve in the human race. The slave form. It says here, he took upon him the form of a slave. Could that possibly be Adam in his purity and sinless nature and beauty and, and all of the rest of it? It can't be. He took the slave form of mankind, yours and mine. We're the slave forms. And that encompasses a whole range of areas. If there were no other text than this, my friends... In the New Testament, about the nature of Christ, I think this would be enough to tell us that he did not skip 4,000 years of heredity. That he took humanity in its slave form, mental, physical, and Ellen White says moral, moral even. He took upon him the form of a slave. Well, those are a couple of the reasons that I choose to believe that Jesus took a fallen heredity. Let's see what Ellen White says on the subject. We're on still the first page of the Ellen White Statements, near the bottom of the page, Desire of Ages 49. Find that statement. It would have been an almost infinite humiliation for the Son of God to take man's nature, even when Adam stood in his innocence in Eden. But Jesus accepted humanity when the race had been weakened by 4,000 years of sin. Like every child of Adam, my friends, put your name right in there. Like every child of Adam, he accepted the results of the working of the great law of heredity. What these results were is shown in the history of his earthly ancestors. And we love to talk about Joseph, don't we? We love to talk about Moses and Abraham, don't we? Do we like to talk about Manasseh? Or Rahab? Or any of the other ancestors of Jesus that weren't quite so good? What... These results were, is shown in the history of his earthly ancestors, he came with such a heredity. Does that leave any room for an Immaculate Conception? Remember, people say, oh, that's just the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church believes that Mary had an Immaculate Conception. She was exempted from 4,000 years of human heredity. The only reason the Catholic Church does that is because of their teaching that we are born sinners, original sin. That's the only reason. They wanted to protect Jesus from being born a sinner, and they said the best way to do that is to give Him one whole generation between sin and Himself. If Mary was sinless, then Jesus had to be sinless. That's the only reason for the Immaculate Conception doctrine. It is not about Mary. It's about Jesus. Protestants have the same problem as the Catholic Church. They start out with the original sin doctrine. They have us born sinners because of nature, And therefore, Jesus, if he were born with our nature, he would be a sinner. So Jesus has to have an Immaculate Conception, exactly as Mary had in the Catholic Church. We call it the Miraculous Conception. Those are nice (laughs) words, because it was a Miraculous Conception, wasn't it? But what we mean by it is Jesus was exempted from 4,000 years of human history. That's what we're meaning. When we say Jesus had a miraculous... When I say we, I'm talking about our scholars, many of them in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, that Jesus had an exemption from heredity, that he skipped 4,000 years. And what you'll be hearing these days is that Jesus took part of heredity. He took weakness. He took tiredness. He took mortality. But he did not take tendencies to temper anger, jealousy, etc., He had a partial exemption from heredity is the most refined doctrine of the Immaculate Conception that I've ever heard. And it is being taught throughout Adventism. You will hear it in our colleges and maybe even in our academies that Jesus was partially exempted from heredity. And so, my friends, do we believe a clear statement, or must we be forced to deny clear statements because of a presupposition of a doctrine that came straight out of Augustinian Catholicism? That's the question for every Adventist to decide. Now, why is this so negative? Why do so many people say, no, no, Christ couldn't inherit what I inherit? Because of what we're going to read next. Both parents... Transmit their own characteristics, mental and physical, their dispositions and appetites to their children. That's not a pretty picture. Gets worse. Page 2. Second paragraph on page 2. He, the Father, transmits irritable tempers, polluted blood, enfeebled intellects, and weak morals to his children. Wow, what a package of heredity. And you say, but Jesus didn't have a father. Ah, did Mary have a father? Did Mary's father have a father? Or did some of those have irritable tempers, perhaps, maybe? Hmm? He transmits to his children. That's why we are being told, Jesus couldn't have that. That would contaminate him. See the point? Contamination. That's why I talked so much about sin and contamination earlier. The next paragraph says, Parents may have transmitted to children tendencies to appetite and passion. Here's the key point. One simple question. Is a tendency to appetite and passion a sin or a temptation to sin? Once you have settled that, you've settled everything that matters about the nature of Christ. See how simple it can be? It is not a complicated thing. You do not have to go to graduate school on this one. Is a tendency to sin? Is a tendency to overeat? Is a tendency toward sexual activity? Is a tendency toward this? Anything. Is it sin or is it temptation to sin? And if you believe it's temptation, then you believe in the Bible record of temptation and that Jesus could receive those tendencies and not be a sinner. And yet we're having people traveling all over Adventism, contradicting what I am sharing with you this afternoon on this simple point. Here's an illustration that may help. We are... Finding evidence, it isn't proved, but we are finding evidence that a child born to alcoholic parents is more susceptible to alcoholism than a child born to non-alcoholic parents. Let's say that's true for sake of argument. Is a baby born to an alcoholic father an alcoholic at birth? Does that baby receive tendencies to alcoholism? Will that baby likely become an alcoholic more likely than the kid down the street? Yes, again. When will that baby actually become an alcoholic? When it chooses to drink. There it is. The tendency to sin is bad news. The choice to sin is guilt. One is evil, one is guilt. A tendency is a temptation, not a sin. I'm going to let you read all of the rest of the statements on this page. They are clear. Read them for yourself. Turn with me to page 3. Remember what I said this morning. Do not believe what I say because I say it. Believe it because you have studied it for yourself and are clear. Page 3. Second paragraph. IHP in Heavenly Places, page 155. The last sentence, just the last sentence in the paragraph. Though he had all the strength of passion of humanity... Never did he yield a temptation to do one single act which was not pure and elevating and ennobling. Pretty clear. The last paragraph on the page, Desire of Ages 122. In our own strength, it is impossible for us to deny the clamors of our fallen nature. Would you agree with that? And does your fallen nature clamor at you? All right. We've got agreement. Through this channel, Satan will bring, what's the next word? Temptation. Ah, but the Christian world says sin right there. Fallen nature, clamors sin. Bible and spirit of prophecy say no, it's temptation. Christ knew that the enemy would come to every human being to take advantage of, notice the next two words, hereditary weakness. So three concepts equal each other. Clamors of a fallen nature equals temptation equals hereditary weakness none of which equals sin Okay, and then the next sentence and by passing over the ground, which man must travel our Lord has prepared the way for us to overcome What ground do you have to travel? Clamors temptation hereditary weakness what ground did Christ travel over? Clamors my friend Not just fallen nature, but clamors of a fallen nature. Ellen White said to an 18-year-old nephew of hers, Jesus has experienced every temptation that an 18-year-old young man experiences. That's clamors, my friend, in a lot of ways. And Jesus experienced that from within. And it was hereditary weakness for Jesus. I think I have good news out of all this story. The good news goes like this. The news that you can share with your friends your Christian friends or your non-christian friends goes like this do you know my friend Jesus have you ever met my friend Jesus because they've met a Christ that is not at all like your Christ they have never met your Christ the friend that you know they have never met the one that struggled they have never met the one that took a risk that could have failed that the whole universe was in jeopardy if one sin was found in him they've never met that Christ they've never met the Christ that had clamors from within like you have clamors from within and you can tell your friend who's struggling with a problem in his or her life are you going through discouragement right now are people treating you badly are there things going wrong Uh, are you angry with someone in, in your in your family Let's find out what Jesus did when he had to go through these temptations. Let me take you to Jesus, and we'll find out how you can have a victory in your life right now. Do you know, my friend Jesus, is the most important question you can ask of your family, your friends, and your neighbors. Do you know? Let me introduce you to my friend Jesus. I even found a statement. Remember, we read in John five thirty, I came not to do my will, but the will of my Father. Listen to this one. The human will of Christ would not have led him to the wilderness of temptation to fast and to be tempted of the devil. Listen to that sentence. Didn't the whole, doesn't the Bible say the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness? The Holy Spirit said, go to the wilderness. And I'm sure Jesus didn't say, well, what should I do in the wilderness? I'm sure the Holy Spirit told him he needed to fast. And maybe even the time of the fast. I don't know. How did Jesus know to fast? Forty days. He didn't do things on his own. I believe that the Holy Spirit sent him into the wilderness. But the human will of Christ would not have led him there. His human will would not have led him to endure humiliation, scorn, reproach, suffering, and death. His human nature shrank from all these things as decidedly as ours shrinks from them. Holy Spirit... You want me to go out there in the wilderness for 40 days and then do direct conflict with Satan when I'm all tired and hungry and emaciated? You want me to do that? I'd rather go back to Nazareth. Thank you. That's what his human nature impressed Christ to do. Go home. Forget the wilderness. I am so glad for the next phrase. What did Christ live to do? It was the will of his heavenly Father. I came not to do my will which would be to go the opposite of God's will. But instead of that, I came to do thy will. That's Signs of the Times, October 29, 1894. And I believe that is the heart and soul of everything we face today. Whose will will we do? Will we do it the way that seems right to us? Or will we do it the way God has told us to do it? Bottom line, we trust our wills way too much. We say, I can figure this one out. Let me put down the pros and cons on this as to what kind of clothes I should wear. Let me put down the pros and cons of what entertainment is good for me, what food I should eat. Let me see what my friends are doing. Let me get a poll. I'll, let, me, let me sort this out. I think I can figure it out. Listen, my friends. Our wills are the most dangerous things in the world because they're sin-infected. They're rebellion-infected. We inherited defective wills, and that's where the decision-making power of the mind takes place. Will, choice. The worst thing you can do is to trust your ability to choose. And you must say, not my will, but thine be done. I submit every choice to your approval before I go ahead with it. And I'll pray it out right here, Lord, on every issue that you're wondering what the right thing is to do. Not my will, but thine be done. All right. Section B. Here is the problem area. No, we're not done. You put them away too soon. <laughs> Section B No sinful propensities. Have you heard about propensities? Yes, you have. The word propensity does not appear in the Bible. So understand this is a purely spirit of prophecy debate that we're dealing with here. What does the word propensity refer to? And I'll take you directly to the statement that has caused all the conflict in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It is on page four, second paragraph. Page four, second paragraph. I am sure someone has read this to you. Be careful, exceedingly careful, as to how you dwell upon the human nature of Christ. Do not set him before the people as a man with the propensities of sin. He is the second Adam. Look down at the last three lines of the paragraph. He could have sinned, he could have fallen, but not for one moment was there in him an evil propensity. There we have it. He couldn't have had our nature because I have evil propensities and Jesus didn't. He was exempted from 4,000 years of heredity. End of discussion. All right, my friends. The key word here is propensity. First, let me share just one little bit of advice. When you're studying anything, I don't care if it's the nature of Christ, the nature of man, uh, uh, whether a person goes to heaven or hell when they die, the Sabbath, whatever it is, do not start with the most difficult text you can find and then try to get to the easy text. You will always make mistakes that way. Where do a lot of Christians start when they want to talk about whether our souls go to heaven when we die? Is there a story Jesus told that they love? (laughs) Rich man and Lazarus, of course. That proves that our souls go right into Abraham's bosom. There he said it. All right. You don't go to the most difficult text you can find and then try to sort it out. You go to the clear statements of Scripture, the overwhelming evidence, then you find the problem text, and you solve the texts. You don't don't ignore them, you don't rewrite them, but you try to understand them in light of the total testimony of Scripture. It's called weight of evidence. Weight of evidence. There will always be a nagging objection to something or other, no matter what teaching you teach. Even as something as clear as the millennium, you will find people saying, no, no, no. It's post-millennial, or it's pre-millennial, or it's amillennial, and it's pre-trib, and it's post-trib, and oh man, you go on and on. All from what seems very clear in the Bible. So don't start with the problem text. This happens to be a problem text. It was never intended for publication by Ellen White. It was a letter to a man in Australia, Tasmania actually. And it was put in the vaults. It was a personal problem that this man had that we don't know what it was. We're doing detective work backward to try to sort it out. And it was discovered in the vaults in the mid-50s and was put into the Bible commentary to try to help us understand this issue. Well, that's the background. So, what does propensity mean? There are three meanings for the word propensity in the writings of the Spirit of Prophecy. Three meanings. The first is holy propensity. What is a holy propensity? Do you enjoy do you enjoy good food? Did God create that within you? A lot of taste buds, right? We have some chickens at our house. I don't think they enjoy their food as much as I do.
1: <laughs>
0: they just gobble it all down it's gone. I savor my food. God put taste buds in my mouth. That's a holy propensity. What happened to that holy propensity after Adam and Eve sinned? God twisted up, didn't it? And that's the second meaning of the word, a fallen propensity. We inherit both of those, holy and fallen. How did that develop in appetite? I don't know when it happened, but somewhere it did. Hey, what's that running through the woods over there? Let's kill him and eat him. He might taste good. (laughs) It had to start there somewhere. Hey, what's that hiding under the rock at the seashore? Let's boil him and maybe boil him alive. He might taste even better. Those lobsters in your supermarket stores. All right, what in the world is going on here? Man's propensities have gotten twisted, haven't they? And then there's a third meaning of the word propensity. Now, we didn't have a fellowship dinner here today. Many of your churches, you've had fellowship dinners, and there is something special about fellowship dinner time. There is always a good array of food on those tables, right? And you can pick and choose to your heart's content. Have you developed that eagle eye that my son has? He looks down that whole table and he sights it all out ahead of time. And he ignores all the stuff here that are a little questionable and heads for the good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, in some churches, people even ask if Sister Jones is going to be there that day to know if it's worthwhile coming to fellowship dinner. Because she's the good cook in in the church. Well... When you pass that special dish that you never see at home but only once a month at fellowship dinner time, do you take just enough for survival and no more till supper time? Or do you think ahead and realize you're, never see, never, you're not going to see that dish for one full month and you take just about three more spoonfuls to give you a good memory? Where did that come from? Did you inherit that? No one lucky day you happened on it and you said wow that's the best thing I've ever eaten and from that day on it was a habit with you to eat it every time you saw it right that is a cultivated or chosen propensity is there a difference between an inherited propensity and a chosen propensity there's a big difference isn't there the inherit the inherited stuff you can't do anything about except live with it you're gonna live with those fallen propensities but the chosen, the habit propensities, Ellen White says, it's not in your outline, we need not retain one sinful propensity. That's right. Not one. That means habit, chosen propensity. You'll find that in Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 943. She even refers to natu- propensity natural or acquired. Two kinds of propensities, natural or acquired. Upward look 313. So those are different meanings of the word propensity. Which is she referring to here? That's the question. It is not a cut and dried issue by any means. People say, well, here it obviously means that he didn't inherit our tendencies. That's what they're meaning. It isn't what it says at all. It says he didn't have the propensities of sin. It doesn't even say propensities to sin. It says propensities of sin. That's right. And so could it possibly be that she was saying, do not set Christ before the, the, before the people as a man with the cherished habits of sin. Could she possibly mean that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I will submit that to you for your thinking. I will be honest and say to you, I can't prove it because there's not enough evidence here to make a final proof statement. We're dealing with only one letter to one man and we don't know what the man taught. But this doesn't prove the other side either. This is not the smoking gun that some people think it is. This is one of those rich man and Lazarus texts that you sweat a little over. And you say, what does that mean? How can I sort that one out? It is not a proof text to deny that Christ took a fallen nature. Okay? Well, let's see what else we want to say. All right, let me do this. Let me summarize at this point what I've been trying to share with you over the last little bit here. And where did I put... Here they are. When Christ came down to this earth, he did not bring his deity with him. He did not use it, I mean. He did not use his deity. That was out of his experience. When he came to this earth, he came with the same fallen heredity that I have. So let's put us down here. This is us. We have fallen heredity. But something has happened to us that isn't the same with Christ. Instead of this being a straight line in which fallen heredity never yields to sin, something happened here at our birth that doesn't allow this to go straight anymore. We begin to develop habits or propensities of sin. Of sin. At the moment when we are convicted by the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ is our Savior and we yield ourselves to Him, He begins to remove these propensities out of our lives. And we come back slowly but surely, unfortunately slowly, too many times to God's ideal for his people. The difference with Jesus is very simple. Jesus does not use his deity, but at the moment of his birth, and this is the moment of our birth, and this is the moment of Jesus' birth, at the moment of Jesus' birth, the Holy Spirit becomes a participant in his humanity. When does the Holy Spirit become a controlling influence in our lives? At the new birth, at conversion. The Holy Spirit becomes the controlling influence in our lives, and he begins to remove these from us. So the difference in Christ, and there is a difference in Christ from us, he did not begin with two fallen parents and develop propensities or habits of sin. He began with one parent in fallen heredity and the Holy Spirit controlling that fallen heredity so Jesus never developed the habits of sin that you and I develop. That's how I understand the difference between Christ and us. Not heredity, but direct development of life. Why is that important? Well, friends, if Jesus overcame sin because he had an unfallen or sinless heredity, if that was the reason he lived 33 years without sin, then when will I have the slightest chance of living without sin? Well, yes, there is. Uh, there's a, it's not never. When I receive the same unfallen heredity that Jesus had from his birth, and when will that be? At the second coming. So if if Jesus overcame sin, not on the basis of the Holy Spirit, but on the basis of a sinless nature, then I will never really be able to overcome sin until I have a sinless nature. And God will push a magic button in my brain, and then I'll never sin again. I just don't see that as the way the Bible teaches the whole experience. So this is what I understand, that Jesus was different in one way, not in heredity, but in direction and development of life due to the Holy Spirit and I can have the same direction and development after I am born again by the same Holy Spirit All right. now let's look at one more point section C reality of temptations what does Hebrews 4.15 tell us? I think you know what that means it says without even looking it up he was tempted in many points like as we are it says all doesn't it? In all points. Was he tempted to appetite? Was he tempted to jealousy? Was he tempted to sexual indulgence? Was he tempted, my friends? Yes. Yes. Just like we are tempted. In all points as we are. Hebrews 4.15 is probably the text which has kept me from moving the direction that many of my colleagues have moved over the ca- course of the past 30 years. I couldn't get around Hebrews 4.15. I didn't know what to do to, to ha- make 4.15 fit with an unfallen nature. And so I've stayed with this view instead of the one that's popular right now. Section D, victory through divine power. And Section E, possibilities for man. I'll leave you to study those on your own because we will deal with that tomorrow in our last meeting. But I want now to take you to one final statement on page 5. All right. Let's just be honest right here. We've dealt with some heavy-duty theological stuff. If some of it has gone right over your head... Well, this propensity thing, I didn't get that. <laughs> if some of it is just whizzed by you. Here is one paragraph. If you understand anything about the nature of Christ, this is the only paragraph you will ever need to know if you want to know how you can have the assurance of salvation. That's what you need. Now, it's on page 5, one-third of the way down page 5, Desire of Ages 363. Every word is important in this paragraph. As one with us. Notice, as one with us, a share in our needs and weaknesses. He was holy. What's the next word? Dependent, Dependent, not independent, upon God. And in the secret place of prayer, he sought. Do you seek for something you already have? He sought divine strength that he might go forth braced for duty and trial. As a man, he asked now and then, pleaded, pleaded, Supplicated the throne of God till his humanity was charged with a heavenly current that would connect humanity with divinity through continual communion. He received life from God that he might impart life to the world. Guess what? His experience is to be ours. You have just read righteousness by faith in one paragraph. You can set aside some of the arguments and some of the controversies. If you can dwell on this, meditate on this, pray over this, make this paragraph your life, you will have peace in your heart. Now, notice carefully it says, till his humanity was charged with a heavenly current that would connect humanity with divinity. Golf carts get charged up every night, they plug in and they get a full charge. And then they run around the golf course all day long on the charge they received the night before. Do you receive a spiritual charge when you go to church? I hope so. That's what it's there for. Do you hope that charge will last you for one full week till you get back to church again? That's not righteousness by faith. It is not golf cart religion. It's old-fashioned trolley car religion. Trolley cars have no batteries. Trolley cars have no engines. Trolley cars have a connecting arm to a power source, a power source of electricity above and beyond them. As long as they are connected to the power source, they move just fine. When the arm becomes broken for some reason, they're dead in the water. They don't go one step, one yard. When you are connected, it says connected here, doesn't it? When you are connected with Jesus Christ, you are righteous. Righteous when you disconnect from Jesus Christ and how do you disconnect from Jesus Christ by choosing to sin and cherishing it when you choose to disconnect from Jesus Christ you do not have a gas tank of righteousness which is at the full level you do not have a battery charge which will hold you you have no righteousness reservoir you have a righteousness connection when the connection is severed there is no righteousness you are not righteous. You have no righteousness. And all your righteousness then is as filthy rags. When you are connected, you are righteous. When you are disconnected, like the trolley car, you have no power, no righteousness, no victory, and no joy. So the key word in this whole paragraph is connection. Connection of humanity with divinity. In connection, there is victory. In disconnection, there is failure. Failure. So what I want to share with you as we finish this particular section out is very simple a lot of controversy goes on around this subject but let us boil it down to the key key part if we are in relationship to Jesus Christ as Christ was in relationship to his father through the Holy Spirit we will have righteousness peace victory and joy in our lives we may slip and fall but remember You can reconnect if the hand slips out put it right back in don't put it behind your back don't wander around for a while when that hands there's one thing that should scare us to death it's not sin and it's not even Satan the one thing that should scare us to death and get all the red lights and the buzzers buzzing in our minds is I'm disconnected I'm not there anymore I don't feel his presence in me. It's it's gone. I've lost him. That should scare us to death. Because there we are wandering without help in a barren wasteland. Connection, my friends. Stay connected. Jesus was connected every minute of his life. That's how he produced 33 years of sinlessness. God can do miracles like that in our lives by connection. Let us stay connected. And then we simplify the whole controversy and we don't have to worry about all the furor that's raging around us. But I believe, remember how I started this, I believe that we cannot really talk about how to be righteous except studying about the man who was righteous and how he did it. Then I think we have some hope. Our pioneers knew that. Jones and Wagoner knew that we kind of lost sight of that because we begin began borrowing concepts from the evangelical christian world and now we have a marriage of true and false theology in the gospel of jesus christ which has no more benefit of success than marrying creation and evolution and saying you believe in both you can't marry opposites and have success and we're trying to do that in the gospel well let's believe in jesus and then sin is a little inevitable You can't do that. Sin and Jesus are antithetical. They don't work well together. And there is power, forgiveness and power in the grace of Jesus Christ. All right, it is almost time for supper. I think supper is what, five thirty? So we have a couple of minutes for questions if you have any or anything that you'd like to ask. So I'll give you a minute, yes? Yes. And also in Romans, uh, chapter eight, it talks about the mind being against God, Yes. Being to the law, yes. And the mind. All right. All right, what about fallen nature, carnal mind, divine nature, and enmity against God? Those are all key points right here. Carnal mind does not mean fallen nature. That is the mistake that is being made today. Well, the carnal mind is enmity against God, and I'm born with that. No, we're not. We're born with a fallen nature, which has tendencies to a carnal mind. Which has tendencies to, carnal, and notice carefully, in Romans chapter 8, verse 7 says, The carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. The carnal mind hates God's law. The carnal mind doesn't want God's law. It wants to do its own thing. Fallen nature has the tendency to do that. The carnal mind is developing that. The carnal mind is character. The fallen nature is equipment. And God is going to take which to heaven? character and nature stays on this earth. So right here this is carnal mind which has nothing to do with equipment. It has to do with attitude. Attitude enmity against God. Verse 6 for to be carnally minded is death. Carnally minded is death. So how does God solve this problem? He sends the divine nature. Guess what the divine nature is? Let me share it with you. I didn't give you the statement I was meaning to Christ's humanity was united with divinity. He was fitted for the conflict by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and He came to make us partakers of the divine nature. What's the divine nature? Indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's divine nature right there. It is not equipment inherited at birth there, it is equipment shared by imparting. That is uh, Desire of Ages 123. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is partaking of the divine nature. So when the divine nature comes into our lives, it crucifies what? The carnal mind, the old man. Carnal mind, old man, old creature all refer to the way we were in rebellion. Our characters developed in rebellion. This part of our lives right here, that's carnal mind. That is enmity against God. Fallen nature is the tendency toward a carnal mind, toward an old man experience, toward enmity to God. And the divine nature, which is the Holy Spirit, removes or destroys the carnal mind, so now we can have the mind of Christ. That's how I understand those te- those concepts. Yes? Mm-hmm. Could you clarify your drawing for me real quick? All right. Um, okay, so you have fallen humanity, which develops propensities towards sin. And yes. Yes, yes. What did Jesus have as a baby that is different from the way we have and how we develop? And bottom line right here, in this area, we are given very little information, all right? So we have to do our best with inadequate information because God didn't choose to tell us everything. So there are two or three theories here. The one that seems most reasonable to me is that the Holy Spirit is coming into Jesus' life in the same way that the Holy Spirit comes into my life. What does he do in my life? He begins to remove the propensities. What did, he did for, what did he do for Christ? Prevented the propensities from developing in character. He prevented the fallen heredity from developing this way. So yes, I believe it is the quality of the born again Christian experience. It's not the same because he never had to be born again. But it is the quality of the divine nature. I said the divine nature comes in here. The divine nature was in Christ from his birth. And that is different than us. So there is a difference. Some people say Christ was exactly like us. No, he wasn't. He chose his parents. Do you? He lived before he came down to this earth. Do you? He had the Holy Spirit for a father. Do you? So the word "exactly" is not the best word. He was like us in heredity. That's what he was like us in. Mm-hmm. Yes. Doesn't that go along with their quote that implies uh, about? Do not look at Christ as exactly like us. As a child, he was not like other children. she says he was not like other children. So there was a difference in the early years of Christ. There is a statement that uh, that uh, she says he came into life you know, experienced it and ended his life with a sanctified humanity. What is sanctified humanity? Fallen nature controlled by the Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: Yes. Yes. Yes.
0: Yes. That's because right. What he says and what
1: he's preaching, uh, what our pastors are preaching today, are very much alike. Yeah. And we, since many of us don't don't study the Bible, and the the energy way, the way we should, because not anymore our yep. church is, is studying the way we should. Yes. Uh, this generation is very
0: confused about this for... All right. All right. I think I understand what you're saying. She was saying that Desmond Ford, this generation, doesn't understand very much about him because that was way back in 1980 and that's ancient history to a bunch of you people today. Now, wait a minute. (laughs) And so right here, uh, do we understand? Are we just as confused now as we were then? What I have been sharing with you this weekend, and I told you that this morning as I went through that, that we thought we dealt with Desmond Ford. No, we didn't at all. We simply said, you can't teach anymore. We didn't talk at all about his gospel, about original sin, the nature of Christ, justification, and perfection. We simply ignored it all. What happens when you ignore false teaching? It comes back and grabs you with a vengeance a little later on. It goes underground for a while, it sleeps for a while, and it comes right back up and hits you in the face when you're least expecting it. And the reality is that, yes, Desmond Ford is off the scene, and hardly anybody of this generation knows what really happened as we experienced it, Kevin and I, at Pacific Union College, when we were going through that experience live on the scene. And when I read statements in our publications and in hearing them in our camp meetings, with precisely the same language and the same terms and the same concepts that Desmond Ford used in the years 1977 through 1981, I say, wow, it has come back in full flower and force again, and we weren't watching when it came back because we said it's Desmond Ford was taken care of. No, my friends, why? You see, I've been doing this now 23 years, and I always, always, when I go to a new church, Talk about these subjects this is the only subject I talk about for the first time when I come to a new church why because these subjects are more confusing today than they were in 1980 when Desmond Ford was on the scene they have now come back full flower and we are now being faced with them in our schools and in our camp meetings and in our publications and you will meet them as soon as you go out of this this room when you go back to your homes and your churches you will meet them and so this is the righteousness by faith is the most confusing misunderstood subject in the seventh-day Adventist Church today and guess what it is the most important subject in everything that we deal with Satan knew which subject to deal with he's gonna leave our Sabbath alone maybe not our Sabbath keeping but he'll leave our Sabbath alone Friday to Saturday night he will leave our state of the death A state of man in death alone he will leave our teaching of the second coming of Christ alone he'll let us believe the truth on those subjects if he can get us on his wagon train on righteousness by faith and the gospel he doesn't care what we believe on the Sabbath he doesn't care what we believe on prophecy he's got us in the palm of his hand this is the temptation that would deceive the very elect this is the one Mm-hmm. and I, I wasn't at Yes. I've never heard the other side, I've heard that they have meetings, and, yes. and it's just silence. That's right. How can we defend ourselves if we don't know what the problem precisely, is? Precisely, precisely. How can you deal with something where you don't know what the issues are? And that's what I have dedicated, and I realize I'm a very little candle blowing in the wind and sometimes almost blowing out. I have felt that way in many times. But I have dedicated the last 23 years of my life to dealing exactly with your situation and the frustration that you have. And that's what I do when I go to churches around the country. And praise the Lord now for websites and for CDs and for cassettes and all the rest. They have made a way of addressing these issues that we didn't have, uh, you know, maybe in Desmond Ford's time. So now we've got more, more ammunition to use on this point. Oh, yeah, face to face with the real gospel. Yes, it is, and many articles on the subject. My website has a lot. Last question, and then we have to go. It's five thirty. On On this subject, I have a complete Bible study series on my website on all of the subjects I'm dealing with this weekend. You can download them or do them online. Dennispreby.com. Spell it right, you'll get there. Spell it wrong, and you'll wander. All right, let's ask God to be with us as we go. Father in heaven, please help us to be clear on the subjects that would destroy our relationship with Jesus Christ. May we understand how important this is and how Satan is trying to derail this beautiful message of Jesus as our personal friend, a near kinsman understanding because he experienced our temptations. Help us to be righteous as Jesus was righteous. In his name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much and good night.